we are uh, resuming our considerations of uh, the book of Chronicles, chapter 1. We have been do using Chronicles chapter 1 as something of a survey of Old Testament history and uh, theology. And so let's get the, the marrow. We, we have actually come to uh, uh, verses 27 and 28. But let's get the marrow of the genealogy again, beginning in verse uh, 1. Adam, Sheth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalaliel, Jared, Hanak, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now pick up with me at verse 24. Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, Nahor, Terah, Abram. The same is Abraham. So, um, as I was considering the the importance of Abraham and in the history of, of Revelation we are sit, certainly hitting a a watershed here I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that in the patriarchal age um, God revealed more concerning himself than he had in the whole preceding history and so this is a, a massive outpouring of uh, revelation with a focus on uh, redemption and the person of Christ. Christ is greatly glorified in these considerations, but I think as we're all aware, with the impact that dispensationalism has had on um, Christianity in the Western world, it's not always easy for Christians in the Western world to see Jesus. In the Old Testament texts. We are not trained to it. As a matter of fact, if we come from general evangelical backgrounds, we've probably been discouraged from looking at uh, the scriptures in that way. My mind traveled back to something I looked at a long time ago. In the, uh, some of you know, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. It's, um, it is a dispensationalist um, nest and breeding ground in their statement of faith they actually say this we believe that it was historically impossible that the israelites self-consciously set their faith upon jesus in the under the old administration now that first part is a direct quote we believe that it was historically impossible that they had jesus as the object of faith Interestingly enough, they'll go on to cite um, Hebrews chapter 11 that the Israelites just had a general belief in God, but not so much a self-conscious uh, faith in, in the Christ to come. Um, with, all, with all due respect to the theologians of Dallas, um, Jesus affirms that he was Abraham's God and Savior, and that Moses was primarily a prophet of the coming Christ, a prophet concerning himself. So let men say what they will about it. Um, nevertheless, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is clear. I wanted to start with some lessons that we have had before together concerning Moses, just to um, kind of dip our feet in the water, get some common ground, and look, then look specifically at Abraham and what the Lord Jesus says about Abraham. So turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're going to be jumping in toward the end of um, Jesus' bread of life discourse. This is pretty early in his ministry. Uh, at this point, um, 
the opposition, there is opposition to Jesus, but it's not really consolidated yet. There's a lot of curiosity about him. You've got a lot of minds that are not yet made up one way or the other. Interestingly enough, it is the teaching of Jesus in this way that does a lot to consolidate the opposition against him as he as he undertakes to uh, instruct the Pharisees um, they are going to be sorely provoked by uh, what he has to say to them about their own spiritual condition now pick up with me at verse 37 And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his sheep. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. So follow his argument there in verse 38. You might want to go the other way. For, halfway through the verse, introduces an explanation um, the explanation makes it clear that God has de declared in the Old Testament scripture that he was going to send his son. And now the son has been sent and they don't believe. And so the conclusion in the first half of the verse is that they don't have the word abiding in them, right? So the word is declared as coming. They don't believe it. And so uh, he says they don't have his, but this would be like going to um, like going to a Christian school and going to the theological faculty and telling them they don't have the word abiding in them, likely to meet with some outrage. His hearers are probably thinking, but we're the Bible people, like we're the most serious students of the Bible. And Jesus has told them in no uncertain terms that whatever uh, knowledge of the word they might have in their their heads it's not it's not abiding in their hearts they're not appropriating its lessons its principal lessons concerning the messiah or they would believe now to preface this point coming um, they would consider themselves to be well they would consider moses rightly to be the old testament prophet par excellence and so they would they would esteem themselves to be Moses' disciples above all others, right? So Moses is preeminent teacher in their minds. And so you can see how provocative Jesus' words to them would be. So verse 39, <coughs> Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Right, so this con continues his argument that they don't have the word abiding. If they would but search the scripture with open and believing hearts, um, they would recognize that those same scriptures are testifying to the Christ as bringing eternal life to them. Verse 40, And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life, I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. Again, imagine imagine the theological faculty. He's told them they don't they don't have the word abiding in them, and they don't have the love of God in them either. And so this this is a pretty stiff uh, medicine. Verse forty three. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? It's interesting. If you were to go to a group of evangelicals and ask, um, 
what's Moses' principal message to the people of God? Well, they might say a lot of things. If their minds travel first to Genesis, they might talk about creation or the fall. Probably, if you just do word association with people and you say Moses, what are they likely to say? They're likely to say law or Ten Commandments, maybe Pentateuch. But probably when, what they wouldn't say by way of word association is Christ, right? A prophet of the Christ. And yet that's the very assertion that Jesus is making. He tells these who imagine themselves to be faithful disciples of Moses that at the judgment, Jesus won't even have to accuse them because their great preceptor, Moses, will stand up and accuse them of being bad disciples, that they had not received and believed his message, which primarily was about the Christ to come. And that, that Moses was a, um, a believer in Jesus Christ, what, what Dallas Theological Seminary has to say notwithstanding, is, is, is uh, expressly argued here. Don't lose your place in John, but flip with me just very briefly to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to pick up with, with verse 24. And what he gives us here is, it's not a super long sentence, but it's, it's long enough where, where it requires some um, attention. We want to make sure that by the time we get to the end, that we have not lost the grammatical subject. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of power in the grammar that can be lost if we just lose our, our concentration because of the length of the sentence. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So I want you to notice that that's actually, that has the subject and the verb, the heart of this sentence. But the sentence is going to continue on for two more verses. But notice that the subject is Moses and the verb pertains to his refusal. Moses refused. Okay? But for our purposes, we're very interested in um, uh, two clauses introduced by participles. And it raises the question, who is the subject of the participles? Right? So, so let me get the, the thread again. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So who is it that's doing the choosing? It would be Moses, right? You might think of like a, like scales in the mind. On, on the one hand, he's got the pleasures of sin that are available to him as a prince in Egypt. And the other thing, you, you have the afflictions that belong to the people of God. And he's actually choosing affliction with the people of God. He'd rather have that than all of the sinful pleasures that Egypt has to offer. So let's pick up the thread. By faith, Moses refused, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So at verse 26, who is the subject of the participle esteeming? That's referring back to Moses. So here, like the first has to do with, like choosing is like action or activity of the will. Esteeming is the evaluation or the weighing of the mind. And so, it, and it's the, pretty much the same contrast. On the one hand, you have the treasures of Egypt, but in the other, and remember, this is a report, an inspired report, concerning Moses' own estimation, his own weighing of these things. So 
On the one side, you have the treasures of uh, Egypt, but on the other, you have the reproach of Christ. That this is his evaluation. He's thinking about the Christ. You might think of that, that 40th year when his, when his mind and his heart is turned toward um, the Hebrews, his people. And so he goes out to look after their, uh, their welfare. He is thinking about the Christ. And we're not guessing at that. That's why I said it's really odd that the Dallas theologians cite this passage because this passage, in spite of the fact that they say it's historically impossible, tells us that Moses is thinking about Christ and there's reproach to att attach to him, but he'd rather have Christ. He sees that as being a greater treasure than anything that Egypt has to offer. And then to make it stronger, he had respect unto, in other words, he's, what he's looking at is the recompense of reward, which has just been described. Uh, Christ himself and life with his people and in the midst of his people. So we can say without, without waffling or equivocation, without, um, like any strange anachronism that Moses was a believer in Jesus Christ. He wouldn't, of course, have known the syllables of his name yet, but he knew the substance of his person, and he was already a believer in his person. Indeed, it wouldn't be inappropriate to say, and dispensationalism has tried to beat this out of Western Christianity, but it's not inappropriate to say that Moses was a Christian didn't know that language yet, but in substance, that's what he is. And once we are well assured of that, it helps us then go back and evaluate Moses' report concerning the people that he wrote about. And large in Moses' mind was the figure of Abraham. So flip, flip now with me to John chapter 8. And again, this is on the heels of his declaration that he, that he is the light of the world in verse 12. Um, they're, they're seeking to defend themselves, saying that they are that they are Abraham's seed, right? So we we are the people of God. We're we're Abraham's seed. Verse 39. They answered and said unto him. Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the, the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Just a little bit of background on, on the controversy and where Jesus has gone with this. They protest that they are the seed of Abraham. And this is, this is an important connection that Jesus is making because it invites us to make it. Uh, and just really quick to preview, um, the, the initial gospel promise is made to Adam and Eve in terms of seed. A seed is promised to them. And then we read, and literarily, it's not that far away, we get to chapter 12, and promises are made to Abraham in terms of seed. And very much in the same, in the same kind of way, 
Um, there's one preeminent seed that is in view, even the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there are all of those that are attached to him, his people. Sometimes theologians just call it, call the totality the mystical Christ, head and body, like the, the, the entirety is, uh, uh, is in view. But here Jesus is making the connection between the Genesis 3 problem and, uh, promise and the promises that are made in terms of seed to Abraham in, say, uh, chapters 12 and, and 17. Interestingly enough, literarily it's very close in history, about 2,000 years removed, and I think sometimes that has a tendency to make us feel like we should put some distance and maybe this, that same old promise Maybe that's not in view anymore. But let me shorten the gap for you a little. Adam, Methuselah, Shem, Abraham. So we think in terms of 2,000 years and how many generations. Adam, Methuselah, Shem, Abraham. Not many generations at all for that old... Uh, promised to be pretty close in living memory, right? Shem knew the the old world, and he's still alive when Adam comes on the scene. So there's a there's a big time gap, but not many generations. And literally, they're put right there together. What's being enlarged to Abraham is that gospel promise that had been made upon their expulsion from from uh, Edom. Now, why, how Jesus is making the connection, they're, they're claiming to be the seed of Abraham, which implicitly is to claim to be the seed of the woman. But he says, he goes back to the, so he goes back beyond Abraham, and he says, no, you're the seed of the, the evil one, right? And so he's interpreting them in terms of the Genesis 3 dialectic, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. They're not the seed of the woman. They're not the seed of Abraham. They are of the seed of the of the evil one. I suppose you can imagine how they wouldn't like that very much. Verse 45. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. And as their seed of, another way of describing the seed of the woman is the seed of God, right? Seed of God, seed of the woman, seed of Abraham. This is all the same, same language. And he's basically saying you're you're in the other camp. You're not. You're not in this camp. Verse 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father. And ye do dishonor me, and I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took up their stones to cast at him. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So Jesus tells us something here about Abraham's faith, which does imply Abraham's own mental um, operations. He was looking forward to the coming of, of the Christ. He was able to see the coming of the Christ in promise, in prophecy, in types and shadows. He saw it and he was glad. So it's not uh, anachronistic or strange to say that Abraham was a believer in Jesus Christ in, in the same way that uh, Moses was. And when he receives the promise of the seed, we'll try to look at this next week, when he receives the promise of the seed, and it says, um, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, this, the promise of the seed ultimately was about the Christ, the same that had been received in Genesis 3, as, as Jesus himself connects the texts for us here. And like I said, literarily, they're not that far apart. It's not a, a big stretch to connect those things in the literary presentation of, of Genesis, um, those, those early chapters. So I wanted to do uh, two things, one part this week and one part next week. Um, I wanted to look this week at the person of Christ, uh, what was known about the person of Christ, at least in a sketch, before the watershed event, revelatory event under Abraham, and then what was added in Abraham's time. And again, we can't do everything, but we'll try to do at least a bit of a survey. So first of all, Remember that uh, from the very beginning, uh, the eternal Son of God was revealed to the people of God, and first and foremost as creator, and you might even say agent of the Father in the work of creation. You can look with me at John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, these great words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it, comprehended it not. So when, when we think back to the creation account, we're given two particular things. The source of light and the source of life. And then generally it's just stated um, everything was made by the word. And then negatively, you can't name a single thing that, that wasn't made by the word. John does like to do that rhetorically. So he'll say it positively and sometimes he'll just flip it over and give the same truth, but, but negatively stated. And when we go back to uh, the creation account and we think about the role of the word there, that John is certainly inviting an association between the personal word and those creation declarations, and God said, let there be light, and God said, let the sea bring forth living creatures, and so on, right? We, we have that creative uh, word. It's not easy to put the things together because on the one hand, um, John is asserting the agency 
the personal agency of the eternal Son of God in these things. But it's, it seems impossible to ignore that you also have the, the execution of what had been decreed before the foundation of the world being presented in these grand statements. I wonder if, if Augustine has maybe hit upon the harmony in, in his meditation upon the title, the word, as it's given to the Lord Jesus Christ in his, in his book on the Trinity. He, so when you think about a human being, we all have an internal life, like an internal conversation that's going on all the time, right? And Augustine will call this the inner word. And even for a creature such as ourselves, it's very rich and it's very full and it's going on all the time. It's so rich and it's so full, you could never share it completely with another person. As a matter of fact, as soon as you started to try, you would be falling behind all the time. You could never share that richness. That's something that belongs to you and God alone. But we do send, we do send an external word also, uh, it can never capture the fullness of the internal life, but when it's faithful and true, it is a legitimate subset and representation of what's going on internally. And Augustine um, meditates upon this reality in the title as it's ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ, because of course, as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he would be a full participant in the internal richness of God, right? He, he's, a full, he's, he's a full participant in all of that richness, which can never be fully communicated externally to any creature. But he's also the agent that takes that internal word and is commissioned by the Father to take it externally. It can never be taken in its fullness because no creature, no collection of creatures uh, could contain all of it. But it is faithful and true. It is a legitimate subset of what, had, what has been um, uh, internally in God in its fullness and, its, and in its uh, richness. But here we, we're told by uh, John that... Um, the Lord Jesus Christ was present in the in the creation. And interestingly enough, uh, when John uses this language, it is not language that's new with John. Here he's just citing the ancient theological vocabulary of his people. If you go back to their, their Targums, um, their Aramaic paraphrastic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures um, and their origins go back many centuries before the Christian era. Uh, they, they are highly authoritative among the Jews. Um, I guess maybe the way like like the very best Bible commentaries might carry a lot of weight with us. Uh, so they carry a lot of weight among the Jewish people. But interestingly enough, this figure, the word of God, beginning in the Genesis account, um, keeps making his appearance as a divine person. So he's not an utterance of God. He's a, divi he's a divine person. And you even get those really strange texts where Jehovah is portrayed as talking to his word and his word talks to him and they have fellowship the one with the other. So this isn't, um, if there's any borrowing for, from Stoicism or something like this, the Stoics probably borrowed it from the East, probably borrowed it from the Jews and others that were associated with their theology. But the borrowing's not going the other way. John's not citing Greek philosophical categories or something. This is the ancient theology of his person, of his people. And this is a, a reference to a person that appears in their literature over and over and over again. Jews reading this would recognize this particular uh, person. So we met Jesus in the very beginning as the word. 
I think John Gill is right. When we meet the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, that that title is functionally equivalent to the word of God or the angel of the Lord, as we will meet him later, just another way. And again, uh, the Targums also seem to think that it was the word of God walking um, an early presentation of that figure that will uh, show up uh, so frequently in, uh, in the Targums. So, so we meet him uh, there as a divine person. And then you remember, just very briefly, I have to be sensitive to, to the time, much is made of the, their nakedness and their covering, which seems to have a lot more to do with are they clothed or not, right? This, this seems to be a very big deal, and it seems to have a lot to do with shame, so before their sin, they're naked and they are unashamed. But then upon their sin, they suddenly become aware of the fact that they are exposed. There is shame attached to them in a way that there never was before. For years and years, I read the Genesis text and I figured the problem you know, was like when they made the plants out of the clothes, that there was something inadequate about the clothing or whatever. But Redden, on balance, and after having looked at the text for years and years and years, given such a great event, but so few words, it would just be really strange if there's so much meditation on the quality of, like, did they make good garments <laughs> or not? That doesn't seem to be the issue at all. And then later on studying indigenous people, people actually can make really good garments out of clothes. We don't know if theirs were good or bad as far as modesty and dealing with what elements they had to deal with or whatever. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the issue. When they try to cover themselves, they are taught in no uncertain terms that they can't with respect to their guilt and their shame, that only God himself can cover them. But this is upon the heels of the fact that um, uh, they've been promised a human redeemer, right? So uh, a redeemer is going to come and destroy the work of the devil, but they can't cover themselves. Only God can do that. And these are some of the first intimations that the Savior is going to be both God and man. And if, if we're not incorrect in thinking that um, the voice of the Lord God was um, the Lord Jesus himself. It, in some ways, the, the occasion is all the more striking. Uh, we meet him as we meet him in the Gospels. There's an inflexibleness with respect to matters pertaining to justice. Um, and yet at the same time, he, he the, um, in proclaiming the judgment upon the serpent before he speaks judgment to the man and the woman he gives the man and the woman hope he actually proclaims the gospel in the context of judging uh, the serpent and so uh, the judgment is not going to be the end of the matter but he but the eternal son of god preaches to them in living voice his own incarnation and his own suffering on their behalf. And it just makes all the more sense when you get to the end. He takes away from them all any sort of pretense. Think about the history of man. Think about the history of religion. Think about the Pharisees. He takes away from them all pretense of being able to cover themselves. And that's probably the institution of sacrifice at that point. Where do the skins come from? Death is introduced, the first death. And they are covered, as it were, by, by that death. And so uh, a rich gospel matrix. Now, I, I should just say by, this way, by way of qualification, it's worth saying over and over again, a lot of times people will look at these threads and they will say, well, it's, it's very cryptic. It's very shadowy. Right. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why we describe Revelation as progressive. But I, I always like Vitzius's uh, description where he said, all of the seeds are there, though. I, everything is there in germ. 
And it's going to be those same seeds that have been revealed there that are going to begin to sprout up through Revelation more and more. Not really different or other stuff, but these same things are just going to be further developed. They're going to be tied together, uh, sometimes in ways that weren't expected. But when you, when you get that later revelation, it's altogether legitimate to look back at the preceding revelation and use it as a help to shine light. Well, we might raise the question, like how much could Adam and Eve really have understood? And we'll come to that in, in just a moment. But already we've got the, this indication that, that Jesus was known as divine. And I've already anticipated his humanity in that first gospel promise that he would be a descendant of Eve, a seed of the woman, that he would suffer, that is said in words, and then and then that first death is probably sacrifice, then it's given to them in pictures, and that that death will in some way uh, cover them. So we got the two indications of humanity. He's, he's the seed of the woman, and he is passable. In other words, his humanity is liable to suffering in a way that is divinity is not liable to suffering. Now look with me just very quickly. We'll look at them both tied together, I think, in the minds of Adam and Eve. Look with me at Genesis chapter 4. Now this is this is immediately upon the heels of uh, the fall, and how much time has passed we're not told. Although it just doesn't seem like it, you get what is known as disjunctive syntax. So so verse one could even begin with something like now, which which gives you some sense of a shift of scene. And with the shifting of scene, it's not easy to tell how much time has passed, but, but the scene has shifted a little, but it doesn't seem like lots and lots. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, uh, and she conceived and bore Kayin in Hebrew. And she said, Kaniti, which is where he got his name. I have gotten. So, um, Kayin, Cain, his name comes from Kana in Hebrew, which means to get or to receive. That's what his name means. But what's really fascinating is what it is that Eve thinks she has gotten. And so the in the direct object position, I have gotten Ish, a man. But then you get the direct object marker, Et, and the divine name. Jehovah, probably like probably the most common grammatical way of rendering this would be as a double direct object. In other words, I have gotten a man, comma, the Lord, the divine name, Jehovah. Or I have gotten a man who is the Lord, but to take these... Um, uh, in apposition, two ways of referring to one and the same person, man and Lord. Now, um, so if you take somebody like Calvin, Calvin was uncomfortable with the idea that Adam and Eve could have known so much concerning the incarnation, because on the face of it, that's what it sounds like, that she, th she thinks she has gotten the man who is also the Lord, the Redeemer that was promised, not in a tidy way, but in several things put together in the preceding narrative. Calvin and a host of expositors after him, including the King James translators, thought that it didn't seem likely that they could have known so much. Um, other Reformed theologians have been more ambitious in their in their thinking about this. I was first introduced to this in Poole Synopsis through um, an expositor by the name of Christopher Helvicus, only to find that there were a lot of Reformed theologians that were 
more ambitious about what was being said here, that Adam and Eve were also believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they had, compared to what we normally, now compared to us, very shadowy presentation of the Messiah, but compared to the way they're normally thought of, kind of robust idea that they're expecting the Savior, the man, who is also the Lord, because only the Lord can cover them, ultimately. And that would also go on and explain much of why Abel gets his name, which means something like vapor. It could have been a, an unintended prophecy concerning the length of his life, that he was only intended for a short time. But, um, but I think consciously in Adam and Eve, if they believed that in Cain they had gotten the Redeemer, more like, what is, what's the other one for? <laughs> like, com or compared to his brother, uh, he seems like very little indeed. So uh, I think in balance, it seems as if they have the right, the right theology, just the wrong person that they've ascribed or imputed it to the wrong person. So, so my point is, from these early chapters in Genesis, it does appear that, um, that there was a, an awareness in the ancient patriarchs that they were expecting the Christ, Genesis 3.15, and they had some knowledge of his person, that, that he would be a man indeed, but that he would also be fully God. And if I might say so, that appears to have been the Jewish theology all the way up to the time that they rejected Jesus. Because you remember when, um, when Caiaphas asked Jesus if he's claiming to be the Christ, in Caiaphas's mind, that also entails a claim to be the Son of God. Right? If you're claiming to be the Christ, you're claiming to be the Son of God, but we don't believe you're the Son of God, so that's blasphemy. right? But in Caiaphas's mind, these are tied together. To claim to be the Christ is not just to be, claim to be a man, think later Jewish theology. This is to claim to be a man who is also uh, the Son of God. So they're, they're looking for the Savior, who's going to be both God and man. And this appears to have been true from the foundation of the world. If you remember our studies in Euhemerism, it would also do a lot to explain why there has been so much um, messianic doctrine in the pagan religions of the world, because this is the first fundamental theology of the world. This would be the theology that Noah and his family get off the ark with and begin to so it would get twisted by idolatry and the fact that the people don't want to worship the true God and they don't want the Savior, but, um, but the echo of it remains. It's never, never totally expunged. So what do, we, what do we learn more about the person of Christ during uh, the time of Abraham? And these, these texts are, are so well known. I'm, I'm not going to... Um, delay, but if you just remember what Augustine has suggested to us about, about Jesus as word, participating in the fullness of the internal word, but also that principal agent for going externally, and you think about Abraham's many revelatory encounters with God, it is probably pretty specifically the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I think we're left beyond question when he has the, the encounter with the three mysterious figures and he learns that two of them were angelic, but one of them is Jehovah himself. Here we have Abraham face to face with his Lord and his God. Now think about Genesis chapter eight. Isn't Jesus telling us as much? In other words, we, we ought no longer to be very surprised by this kind of connection. Jesus has told us to look for it and to, uh, and to expect it. Um, and then with respect to his uh, humanity, uh, he is the recipient of the promise of the seed. 
And it's really interesting. Um, again, I won't, I'd encourage you to look at 12, 15, and 17 of Genesis in particular for, for your later uh, reflections, because it, it's a really interesting thing. He's, he's promised many nations, so many children and many nations, and many kings of many nations. And of course, we, we know that the descendants of Abraham are not just not just Isaac, but Ishmael's children, and not just Jacob, but Edom's children, and all of the offspring of Keturah peppered throughout Arabia, and so on. So we know that he was the father of many nations and the father of many kings. But what's really interesting too, but there's just one line that is the line of promise, right? So many nations, but one nation of promise. Like this is where the covenantal promise is going to reside. And of course, there are going to be many kings, kings of Edom and so on, but but just one king of the covenanted nation who's going to become the conduit of blessing to the entire world. How clear was Abraham in his own mind concerning this? Jesus gives us at least a, a clue concerning it. But before you leave the patriarchal history, when you get into Jacob's prophecy concerning Judah, it starts getting a lot plainer uh, in a hurry. And this, this revelatory watershed is not just Abraham, but it runs through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then, and then the 12 sons. Like you get this massive outpouring that actually lasts uh, for, uh, for a couple of centuries. We learn something very important genealogically, and it makes a lot of sense because when Adam and Eve first heard that he's going to be the seed of the woman, well, that's helpful. But then mankind begins to multiply, and so the danger of losing the Messiah and the like, where do we look for him? How do we how do we find him? Children are exploding. So it's interesting that Genesis follows one particular line. Whatever happened in the antediluvian line, eventually it narrows again, and the promise comes into the family of Noah. They get off the boat, and in Genesis chapter 9, we learn that it's that the messianic promise does not belong to Ham or Japheth, although they will ultimately be beneficiaries. It's coming into the family of Shem. But now by the time we get to Abraham, Shem's, and remember our work in the genealogy, Shem's descendants have now spread out. And so now God is narrowing the focus again. It's not just any Shemite. It's go he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. And this is part, you guys will know the text very well. Um, Matthew focuses on two principal genealogical contact points. Um, Abraham and David, right? Because famously, these were the families, like, because of course the family of Abraham is going to begin to spread out. Judah is identified. Family of Judah begins to spread out, and David's line, which will which will remain comparatively narrow, look for him in the family of David. Interestingly enough, at least implicitly, you also get a location for Messiah as people spread out all over planet Earth, right? Do you, family of Abraham in a promised land. Now in Micah. The Lord's going to make that even narrower and specify Bethlehem of David. These are important con uh, contextual points for finding Messiah in the mass of humanity. How do we find him? Well, interestingly enough, in the days of Herod, the Jewish theologian knew where to look for him. You look for him in the family of David, in the city of David, in Bethlehem. They know where to go. And interestingly enough, they also had it seemed to have a sense that it was about it was about time. Um, when you look at time frames and you see the triangulation of finding Messiah, Genesis 49 gives it in a general way. Look for him before government passes away from the Jews. Daniel will actually give the 490 years. Very difficult calculation, but no matter how you cut it, it's about right. And you can see why there was messianic excitement and fervor and expectation in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have 
You have a triangulation of the, the Messiah through genealogy, which is important, location and time. Like what family, where and when to, to expect him. And this is, these, these were three powerful strands that were used in, in Christian polemics with the Jews in the early ages where they basically challenged the Jews, if Jesus is not the Messiah, then the time frame is past, government has left the Jews, and your Messiah is not coming. This led to a very strange fable from the Jews that, where they conceded to the Christians that he was born in that place from that family at that time, and he's been in the world ever since, just hidden until Israel repents. Right? But they, they felt the press of the power of that polemic. If he's not it, then your Messiah is not coming and the ancient promises have, uh, have failed. So we have him now, not just the seed of the woman, human nature, but now uh, the descendant and offspring of Abraham uh, in, in particular. So here we're, we, we are having a a rapid and considerable advance. Next week we'll look at look at prophet, priest, and king, which will enlarge some upon upon a little on his person, but a lot upon his work and and what he's going to do. But Jesus is being presented before our eyes in all of the scripture if we have eyes to see him and to behold him. So just one note of um, application. Uh, I remember years ago uh, reading Jonathan Edwards for the first time and not finding what my public school education had expected me to find. I, I expected sinners in the hands of an angry God, and of course I found that and read that, and that was part of what Edwards did. And I, you know, he defended it really solidly when even in his days people complained about the preaching of threats. And Edward said, how can I do anything else as a preacher of the word? God threatens. <laughs> so we've got to include that as part of the preaching. But what surprised me was that actually wasn't the balance of his, of his preaching. And I, I remember reading one of his meditations on the beauty of the divine being. And I thought, I have been around Christianity I have sat in sermons for my whole life and I have never heard anybody talk about God like this. There was a certain kind of God-centeredness about it. My, my whole experience in Christianity had mostly been, what can God do for me, right? And at its best, that was highlighting salvation. At its worst, it could be other things. Um, growing up in charismatic circles, name it, claim it movement and other things were never far away, right? But it's a very human-centered, what can God do for me kind of thing. But to to read a, to read Edwards and to read about Edwards riding out into the countryside and thinking about the marvelous display of the love of God and providing a Savior, but, but meditating upon the love and not so much about what the Savior can do for me, which is a part of it. <laughs> But the, but the shift in the focus, and I thought there's something about that that is, that is just so taking, something about that that's so lovely and, and so right. And hopefully this will, this will remind us, you might, you might think about Psalm 45 and the presentation of Jesus as beautiful, as the chief among 10,000 or the Song of Solomon and the way that the church describes him in his beauty. Um, sometimes that, that's just fetching and it takes the heart. You might think of the presentation of his beauty in Revelation chapter 1 where it's so awe-inspiring that the beloved disciple falls at his feet as one dead. The, the radiance and the brilliance of um, the God-man a radiance and brilliance only, only partially revealed in John, who was so intimate, so close to the Lord Jesus, is suddenly on his face like a, like a dead man. But there are many things that the presentation of Jesus ought to do. But part of what it ought to do is 
is draw out the adoration of our hearts. Here he is presented to us as God with all of the divine attributes. And there's, there's a beauty and a glory. We might think about his power in the creation of the world, his wisdom and proportioning means and ends so all things exist in this wonderful and, and strangely delicate balance. Strangely delicate because everything goes on working somehow, but it doesn't seem like it should, but it, but it does. And we think about his, his goodness to the children of men. And in spite of the fact that we are wicked wretches, he continues to bless us with sunshine and rain and comforts and laughter and joy. This is all our um, beloved Jesus. When you think about him in his providential government of things, taking care of things uh, great and small, all things holding together by the word of his power. There's something both lovely and awesome about uh, all of that. And when you think about the love that is revealed, that he would um, condescend to take to himself a human nature in his first coming, not to rule among us as a prince, but to live in poverty in his almost unspeakable condescension, descend to the lowest and to relate to the lowest so that he might be readily identified as, as the redeemer of all and con concerned about the condition of all. It kind of re reminds us of Psalm 113 where God is portrayed as high and lifted up above the heaven of heavens, like so high that not even the heavens can, can contain him or reach him. And yet it ends with him intimately close to the man on the dung hill and the barren woman who wants children, right? This, this marvelous, exalted, lifted up God yet condescends to the lowest. And we see that in in Jesus, and even the manner of his coming, the family into which he was born, the feeding trough into which he was received, all speaking of his his wonderful love for, for even the lowliest of fallen humanity. Um, if we have truly converted hearts beating in our chest, this ought to draw our hearts out and in adoration and he is presented to this um, great end that we might relate to him in love let us pray together Father in heaven, we can do nothing but marvel with David. What are we that thou wouldst be thus mindful of us? There can be no greater gift than thine infinitely dear Son. And there can be no greater manner of giving in that he has been given to rescue us from our sins by suffering in our behalf to the end that we might live eternally in thy presence together with him. There are, there are no words to express our gratitude 
our wonder at his at his loveliness we we read in the scriptures that thou art able to hear a groaning that cannot be uttered. Our hope is that thou art able also to see, hear, and understand an adoration that escapes speech. And we are so grateful for the presence of the Spirit in us who creates it within us. So receive our uh, thanksgiving and our, our love such as it is as we spread it before thee in the name of that same wonderful Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.